Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining the Cozy Corner Book Club with your hosts, Sean and Lindsay. Sean and I have been best friends for over 15 years, and we spent that time dreaming up books to write, houses to build, banana bars to open, I mean, the list just goes on and on. So last year, we decided to start a blog of our own, Sean and Lindsay's Best Friend's Guide to Everything. On the blog, you can find recaps of your favorite film franchises, meal prep recipes, travel guides, our best adulting tips, and so much more. Check it out at bfguidetoeverything.com. In addition to our blog, we started the Cozy Corner Book Club and Podcast. Read along with us and then find us on Facebook and Instagram for our weekly discussion questions. Alright guys, this month we read Midnight for Charlie Bone by Jenny Nemo. This is a favorite of Sean and I's from elementary school. We both really enjoyed it, so we're excited to discuss it with you guys today. Um, Just wanted to go over our spoiler policy. Any and every book that we do here on the Cozy Corner, we will be talking about major plot points and spoilers. So if that bothers you like it does us, then go read the book first and then come back and listen to the podcast. With this book being the first installment in the series, our discussion will be limited to just this installment. We will not be discussing any plot points that come in the following books. So we will begin with a brief summary. Our book begins with Charlie working on making a birthday card for his best friend, Benjamin. Instead of the photo of Runner Bean, Benjamin's dog, he accidentally receives a photo of a baby. He hears strange voices and finds out he can hear the voices of the people in the photographs. His spiteful grandmother and her sisters are happy that he's gifted and enroll him at Bloor's Academy, a school of the arts and for the endowed. He takes the picture to its proper owner, who tells him the sad story of a child given up for a mysterious case. Julia, the owner of a bookstore, gives Charlie the case and a robotic dog and thanks for the picture. Charlie tries to open the case to no avail. Suddenly, his aunts and other people are after him and Benjamin, trying to get the case that mysteriously won't open. Uh, Charlie and his friends from school work to keep it hidden and to find out its secrets. Charlie's friends activate the robotic dog and find it has a hidden message that reveals that Amelia Moon is actually a hypnotized Emma Tolly. Julia's niece, a.k.a. the missing baby, and the chest, the Tolly Twelve Bells, is actually able to revive a person who has been hypnotized so deeply that they are spellbound. He also hints that the man who tried to prevent the child's abduction was Charlie's father. With his friends, they are able to convince the spellbound girl to meet up where the kids so they can activate the case and free her. Emma goes back to school pretending to be under the spell, But Billy Raven told the Elder Bloor what had happened. Manfred Bloor, the hypnotist, was dispatched to put her back under the spell. But Emma is able to get away and reunite with her aunt. The Bloors try to find out what they can from Charlie. But using his gifts, he was able to prevent Manfred from hypnotizing him, surprising everyone. Later, all the students go into the ruins as part of the school contest. When Charlie is abandoned and gets lost, he encounters Asa another endowed student that transforms into a beast at night. Charlie is rescued by a few of the other endowed students, and the cook makes a midnight feast to celebrate him surviving, showing off her ability to put even the blores in their place. 
The following weekend, the parents and the kids celebrate Emma's welcome home party. Now that Charlie's uncle was able to bully the Bloors into releasing the paperwork needed to prove the abduction and her rightful guardian. So, we'll start our discussion off. Um, who can you trust if you can't trust your family? So, the book starts off very quick to point that, you know, Charlie is growing up with his mom, two grandmas, and his uncle. Um, his uncle, well, his I guess great uncle is basically living in the basement. His he is fearful of his powers, which basically accelerate technology and electricity. And he, you know, so light bulbs flash and just you know shatter all the time around him. So he likes to be off on his own. But there are so many parallels that are brought up between his two grandmothers. There's Maisie, who is his mother's mother who is the, like, stereotypical doting grandmother. You know, comes in, does, you know, cooks for him, you know, sees him all scratched up and goes, what are they doing at that school of yours? No, you can't be going back. Like, you know, very, you know, concerned for his safety. And then there is Griselda, who is his father's mother, who is very spiteful, very vicious, and her sisters are always scheming and it's charlie doesn't know what they're scheming about but he knows that they're just not good people um this whole thing is you know this experience is who can charlie trust and most of the people he's you know giving his confidence to are strangers which to me was a little baffling yeah, same. <laughs> like, oh, this random man comes up with three, like, leopards. And, oh, just making casual conversation while they're hunting, ca- like, while the cats are hunting all the mice. And he's just in there, in the house, like, hey, what's up? And then he shows up at his, like, best friend's house, uninvited. Like, nobody calls it as an exterminator or whatever. He's just there. Like, none of that screamed stranger danger. But he turned out to not be a bad guy, so... Yeah, lucky for Charlie. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) What about you? Yeah, I thought um, it was kind of funny. I mean, the... He was, like, given the secret, and they said, like, don't tell anybody that you can't trust with your life, like, about the secret. And within, like, a chapter or two, he told, like, five people, most of whom he had met maybe once. (laughs) Like... Yep. (laughs) So... Even though his family wasn't super trustworthy, he definitely put his trust in other people um, and was quick to do so, which it worked out okay for him for the most part, other than, like, one person, but, yeah, um, I don't know. And that was the thing. I was reading the book, like, I mean, I've read the whole series, but it's been a long time. So I'm like, Charlie, what are you doing telling all these people things? Yeah. Like, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And kind of did. It did. I mean, you know, they, they convinced Billy Raven, who is an orphan and an albino. And, like, I, they kept mentioning that. Like, I was like, I don't know why they're being so specific that he's albino, but... Yeah. Okay. Maybe it comes more into play in a later book, but the only, like... I, I think I think it's just a condition. was that he, like, his vision wasn't great. And so, like, there was a part where they're kind of in the dark, like, walking up these stairs. And 
like they mentioned like Billy was more scared because he has a harder time seeing in normal light, much less in the dark. But like other than that, yeah, it wasn't relevant. So it, it wasn't, yeah. but they mentioned it so <laughs> many times. But he's an orphan. He's younger than everybody else in the book. And you know, he's being used. They're like straight up, they're like, Would you like a family a nice family to adopt you? I can make that happen. But you need to tell me about Charlie and what he's doing. What part of that doesn't scream um, what the hell? Yeah. Like, what well, is going fair, on? What kind of deal are you Billy making? Billy was, like, seven. True. And Charlie's only ten. So, True. like, it's easy for me, especially, to think, like, what are these kids thinking? You know, like, this is such, made, it's such a dumb decision. Like, why would you put your trust in this random person you don't know? Or why would you, you know, rat out your friend for the chance at his family or whatever? But they're so young, you know? It's True. like that. It puts things in perspective, at least, but... Still not, like, a good quality, but for a 10-year-old, it's a little bit more understandable. Yeah. Uh, so, friendship is another important theme in this story. What does the story tell us about the true value of friendship? I mean, like we said, his he came from a not-so-typical, like, family life, and his mom and his mom's mom, so Maisie... Like, they were really the only caring people in his family up to this point. His uncle gets to be a bigger part of Charlie's life throughout the book, but really, like, at the start of the book, he's not had much of a relationship with his uncle, so he's not been, like, a super caring father figure or anything. Um, so because of that, he does, you know, he's, his friends are important to him. So he's got his best friend, Benjamin, who lives next door to him that he's been friends with for years, and he really... Um, I don't like Benjamin also doesn't come from a great family life and his parents are always gone. So Charlie, you know, puts an emphasis on going and checking on him and keeping him company. And so he is a good friend. Um, he makes friends very quickly. Like yeah. That's what, earlier. that's what surprised me is that, you know, at the beginning of the book, it's very clear. He has like one friend and it's Benjamin, yeah. like the rest yeah. of the people, whatever it's Benjamin. And then suddenly he goes to the school. Now he has, like, 15 best friends. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa, like, dude. And tells all of them all of his secrets. All of the secrets. <laughs> what about you? Um, to me, this book, friendship is an important theme. But because this book is all about him making friendships. Um, like what, what the most to me, iconic friendship and one of the ones that's, you know, very understated is the one between Lysander and, uh, what's his name? Starts with a T. Torek? Tarek? I have no idea. Lightning dude. Uh, I don't remember. Tancrick or Tancrick. Oh. Or I, I'm pronouncing the name terribly because I can't remember off the top of my head. But, you know, towards the end of the book, the two, these two older guys, because they're, you know, I want to say 16 years old, where everyone else is like 10. Uh, they're just, or maybe 14. But they're just like hanging out. And when they hear Charlie is still in the ruins, the two of them immediately know what's up. They go, oh no, Manfred and Dorcas have pulled something. Asa is down there and we know he transforms into a monster and they're like, okay, we have to do this. 
And you already see that they have a good relationship. But you also see that this tension between two factions of the endowed, the ones that go, you know, are following greed and the ones that are not. Charlie's just joining this ongoing conflict because these older kids already knew what was going on. And when some of the other kids were like, oh, we'll go and help. They're like, no, this is between us. This is the, this is between the descendants of the Red King. Like you will put yourself in danger. We need to take care of this because only we can handle the other descendants. Which this isn't just like a schoolyard feud. Like this is a, their ancestors for, you know, as long as they can go back have had this feud of like the whole idea is the Red King had 10 children. Mm -hmm. Five of them were good and five were bad, (laughs) you know? And so there's always this like half and half is good and evil. And that has trickled down in the lines and not that like all the evil families are evil all the way through. Like they have good ones and bad, but it flip flops. And so like the whole, each family line from the 10 kids down has that kind of, like I said, good and evil battle within, I guess. So Mm -hmm. this factions you're talking about, like that's an age old thing is this. And the thing is, is up until the end, Charlie doesn't realize that he has put himself in the faction against his grandmother and the Bloors. Like, he's just sitting here like, I want to do the right thing. I need to help her. I need to help this girl. And when he helps her, you know, but at the end, you know, Lysander, Tancred, they come out and they're like, hey, we're helping you out. You're one of us. You're, you know, we can't let you fall victim to these oppressors. So they have now, now Charlie is on a side of a conflict that he has no idea about or the history of. Which he didn't find out the whole Red King history until pretty late in the book. His uncle finally like sat him down and explained the whole and, thing. And even then it was more of a mention. It really wasn't a, you know, deep conversation about the conflict. It was just, he had 10 kids, uh, five were greedy and started like trying to take over other kingdoms and surmount power. And the other ones tried to run away. And that's it. That's all we learn. Um, what was the most defining moment or moments of this book for you? Um, one that comes to mind for me is his uncle Patton, who he is one of the um, siblings. It's his great uncle, not like his regular uncle, I guess. <laughs> so it's, you know, like the his grandmother that he lives with, the um, Griselda. Yeah. And then there's three great aunts beyond her, and then Patton. So Patton has lived with them this whole time, but like Patton, said, I think also like is the, the youngest of the all of the siblings. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but so this whole time, he he mentions like he's he's kept his head down, like he hasn't gotten involved. He's just stayed to himself. He's you know he just keeps into his room. He only goes out at night so that he can't shatter light bulbs everywhere he goes. Um, so there was a line in the book where he said, like, you know, I've always kept my head down, but really sometimes I should have put it up. And he ends up doing that. You know, towards the end of the book, he starts sticking up for Charlie and sticking up for what's right and taking a stand against his sisters who are, like you said, on that other side of this feud. So um, and also I know that's with not that... a Charlie defining moment, but that was one of the defining moments for me. But I mean, to expand on that, him taking that first step of helping Charlie... He finds romance. Yeah. 
I mean, ultimately, the date went terrible when he actually went to dinner with her, but... <laughs> but only because he was so excited about her. <laughs> and, and a little tipsy. Yeah, that's you. A little, little tipsy. <laughs> um, but, I mean, she ends up, like, putting, you know, they have the party, and then she makes sure all the light is by candle. Yeah. Like, she did small things to make sure he could go, but... You know, he was able to have a potential romantic relationship. Which is something he couldn't do before because he was a shut-in. But a self-imposed shut-in, you know? Like, no one made him do this. And, like, I understand his reason for it is, you know, to not just break everything everywhere he goes. But Well, it's um... also to not accept the wrath between the two warring groups. Like... You know, he doesn't want to betray his sisters and work against them. but And that's essentially what he's done. He's, you know, he's a bystander. He's being passive. He's just as guilty as they are. Yeah, which is something similar we talked about in our Great Gatsby podcast. Is That was Nick's situation the whole time. Is He might have not been actively participating, but he wasn't stopping it either. So... Speaking of Tobey Maguire, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so how easy is it to become a stray? Super, super easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as we're reading the book, you know, you have to think about the timeline a little bit. Manfred, um, not only did he almost die in a fire right as the book was beginning, supposedly practicing sorcery um he's like what 16 years old go back i mean he's got to be older than charlie but he is but if i remember correctly like later in the series he does actually graduate from the academy and immediately becomes a paid employee um he like he stays at the academy as now an employee so i want to say he's but I don't know how much time actually passes, but I want to say he's up there. Like 16, 17 at this point. But the significance that I find is we don't know who caused the hypnosis. At this point, the only person that has the hypnotic power is Manfred. So you have to realize potentially this six-year-old kid hypnotized both the Emma Emma as a child to make her forget her identity and potentially what's hinted at and what uh, Charlie is theorizing is his own father who, like Peyton, what, you know, wasn't really involved in a whole lot, but he thinks was punished because of be, for acting against the Blores and his the, the, the sisters. Um, like, I'm thinking, like, this is a six-year-old kid who literally just, you know, did some real hardcore hypnosis. And then it's like, you know, I'm just sitting here like, the two uh, girls that have telepathy, they're sitting there shooting pencil boxes at each other back and forth. And I'm just like... And they're kind of allied for the other side, the bad side. So I'm just sitting here and you're like, you're seeing all these gifts. And on one side, you're seeing like Lysander and Tancred, who we don't actually get to see their powers, really. They hint at their powers. 
but you're like, these are incredible powers. They're using them for good. But it's like you're seeing it on the other side as well, and it's just like... It only it all comes down to morality. Like, were you taught right and wrong, and do you follow it? Yeah. And, I mean, these people that have these insane powers, like you said, Manfred with his hypnos- like, hip- hypnosis, hypnotism. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he is... Like, I don't even know how to describe him. He is a bully for, you know, one. But beyond that, I mean, he is, like, beating people, it says at one point. And he has essentially unchecked power at this school as a kid, as a 15, 16-year-old kid, you know? Yeah, because his family owns and runs the school. And he's, what, head boy or prefect or something like that, so... I don't know what he is, but he's over here giving detentions and all kinds of crazy stuff and... Um, I don't know. It just, I thought that was insane to have given this kid, it'd be like giving Malfoy this, you know, crazy power that he can just run around the school and do whatever he wants. Like, well, he did. He was a prefect for a while and then a member of the inquisitorial squad. Right. But he never beat anybody. He didn't put anybody in a dungeon. Like he wasn't, you know, like this goes He would have if he could have gotten away with it. Okay. But... (laughs) Manfred was able to get away with it. And the whole dungeon thing was just locking up the, the Emma again to put her back underneath the spell. And Grandpa Blore was there too. And he's like, do it. Like Emperor Palpatine, do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Give in. I don't know. I just thought that was Terrible Emperor insane. Palpatine voice. <laughs> we know what you're going for, though. <laughs> um. Yeah, I just thought it was insane how much uh, they just let him get away with and how little they cared, you know? Well, I think it's because he was in the know. I want to say that considering the role he was playing, he had to have known what was going on. They had to have confided in that, and that made him want to be a part of the plan. That made him want to really push for its success. So, yeah, he was doing these crazy things, like what we would call crazy, But it was all for the plan. So next, animals play a huge part in this book. Who do you think had the biggest role? Um, I would say the cats, probably. Um, they're, it's, what was it, Aries, Sagittarius, and... Leo. Leo. Um, and they, they describe them as cats, but are they the panthers from, like, the Red King's Panthers? Um, let me see if I look in the intro. I believe they're leopards. They're the leopards of the Red King. Because Charlie and them just Red, orange, and bronze. Okay. But basically they have, like, this power to, like, create fire or turn into fire. No, um, what it, like, the, the cats themselves don't turn into fire. I mean, they're called the flames because they look like the col- like you know, the colors of flames. They literally um, set stuff on fire. Well, they knocked over candles. Like they they caused a fire, because that's what Manfred had said. They came in, they swatted the candle off the table. They came in and they do this. These cats are obviously like supernatural of some sort, but they aren't literally fire. No, they had a whole scene where they talked about them spinning in a circle and it turning into fire. Well, I completely missed that. when they were at Charlie's house. (laughs) And Manfred was the one who was telling them it wasn't a candle, it was the cats. 
well, I'm a mess, and I completely missed that <laughs> twice. So, yeah, they've got, like, this weird power, and they are with Mr. Ominous, who I'm still not... His name! Why. His name! He is Ominous! Children! No! Stranger danger! <laughs> but it worked out, right? It, it did! He, he ended up being nice. In this book, like, because we don't know name. what goes on next, but, like... His name is literally ominous. No. Children. Maybe dictionary. Charlie didn't know what ominous meant. <laughs> Clearly, he did not. That would have been like uber stranger danger. Yeah. And um, they had some kind of like a sense where like these cats could, like they knew where this picture was that Charlie had. And so they like brought Mr. Ominous to the, to Charlie. And Mr. Ominous had some way to communicate with the cats. And so... That was kind of how they got put on the whole mission to go, yeah, to find Julia at the bookstore and start looking for her niece, so. Um, Another animal who I think was, uh, uh, who had a huge role was obviously Runner Bean. Throughout. What a name, right? Runner Bean. Like, I I love it. (laughs) Um, But, like, the grandmas, all of them detest animals like the one is like the one let asa as a beast come in there and literally tear up runner bean um and was like oh whatever like i don't know what vendetta they have against animals or why well she was but runner bean doesn't case, deserve right? that he, he, i agree but I, she was trying to get to the case and runner bean was guarding it well or pretending to she guard it, thought he was guarding it yeah, so she brought the Asa, the beast, whatever, in to attack Runner Bean so that she could get down there to the case. But the case wasn't actually down there. Sucks to suck. <laughs> Sucks to suck for Runner Bean. <laughs> you know, I know. I was so, like, like, I had to remind myself that he'd be okay. Because I'd read this book before. <laughs> but yeah, it, it inside of me. if he was going to be okay or not. Oof, I'm it was sorry. looking pretty rough for a while there. It was. But I mean, like, he is such a good boy. Like, like I don't even know Runner Bean, but I'm like, you're a good boy. <laughs> yeah. And he was a good companion for Benjamin. Like, that was Benjamin's dog. And since his parents were, like, never around and he wasn't super popular in school, like, he didn't really have any friends. They all, I think it mentioned that they just really made fun of him and he never even noticed. Um, so Runner Bean is, like, almost a, not a parent, but, you know, like a... A family member. Yeah, and keeps him company and out of danger, and he's a protector. Mm-hmm. So. so we talked a little bit about this book being compared to Harry Potter in the past. So what were some similarities and differences that you noticed um, that you either did or did not enjoy? Ha 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 ha. Okay, <laughs> let's begin. First off, in Harry Potter, they are sorted into houses, which are they're sorted by the what values they hold like what do they value do they value bravery what you know uh intelligence ambition uh it's all about what they value is what house they're put into whether or not they actually display those values is a whole nother matter this book uh the way that they have the students broken up they're basically uh 
I, I think of it as like three colleges. You have the one of art, music, and theater. Which to me is actually kind of like how, I'm going to pronounce this completely wrong, but Illermorny, the American School of Magic, is set up. It's, you're not divided up by your qualities. You're divided up based on your career path. And literally, and all of the students that, well, disclaimer, not all, but the majority of students that go to that school, they're actually really gifted in those fields. Like, they're amazing artists. They're aspiring, like, future leaders in uh, theater. And going, you know, like, famous musicians. They mentioned that Bloors has a reputation for turning out such creative individuals. Well, that's the actual goal of Bloors. It's like, it's not meant to be a magical academy. Like, it's an actual school for gifted students in these fields. And then they, and just, then they just use the gifted asterisk, the and they're like, well, we got to keep an eye on these kids, too. We're yeah. going to make them go to school here, and we're just going to put them into one of the three and just hope it works. Yeah, which I thought was so dumb, to be honest. You know? like, <laughs> they're like, you're totally going to be in like, the music school. Yeah, And he's totally like, but like, I don't know I any music. We're going to teach you. Yeah, so they send over a tutor once a week for Which is two a student. Weeks. A student yeah. at his same grade level. Like, yeah. not even, like, an <laughs> upperclassman. Just some kid who's going to be in class with him. Yep. Oh, by the way, you're going to train this kid. You don't even know. So, how in the world were you supposed to... What are the teachers doing? ...fellow students if you don't actually know how to play piano and you're playing with people who are so gifted in this that they're at a special school just for it, you know? And also, I thought it was exactly. interesting that... Magic is not, like, a secret in the school, you know? Like, the regular kids know about the endowed ones. And they are kind of sometimes secretive about what exactly their powers are, but they know why they're there. So I it, thought that was interesting. It's clear that they're different, but, it, like you said, it's not always known how. Um, Like, or, I mean, it's not... It's open that... These are the endowed students, and they have some sort of ability, but they all, but they don't. The other students don't know what those abilities are, and I think that's also true for potentially outside of the world, where you may know somebody's endowed, or maybe you just know that there are endowed people out there, but we don't know at this point, like. Um, if it's just the people in this area, if there's people all over the world, we don't know how worldwide this phenomenon and how much common knowledge this is. Because it's really only like 10 families that have this Well, power. it's and of course, 10, it's 10 lineages. From, right. So it's expanded quite a bit, but potentially still like, but they're only supposed to marry other endowed people. So like well, the that was only the pure. UB, that's only the requirement for men of the U-beam line. Oh, okay. Because that, that, they specifically went, because um, uh, Charlie's grandma, the evil one, was just like, oh no, I'm allowed to marry whoever I want, but the men of our family are expected to marry an endowed woman. Yeah. To maintain our purity. Which, very pure bloodish. That's mm, true. Like another tie into Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> um... But those, that's like the biggest and most important thing I saw is that it was a school, but it wasn't a school of magic. It was a school of the talented. And yeah, they really it was about using, career. They weren't learning how to use their magic. They just were being, they had, they're 
Oh yeah, they weren't even told them. to use them. They were not given any instruction on how to develop their abilities. They it, they it looked like they were purposely just kind of like pulling them in, seeing what they could do, and if it worked for them, using them as tools. Yeah, agreed. Uh, what did you notice? Uh, the similarities and differences. Um, so this book reminded me of two different series. I thought it was like a perfect mixture of Harry Potter and series of unfortunate events. So it's <laughs> Harry Potter in the aspect that it's like got magic and you know he gets sent to a school and it's a boarding school and he meets friends and like at the school he's kind of got two it's like a, what's her name Olivia that he's good friends with and it's like a little trio at school and then he's got some like secondary circle of friends also at school and then his one friend back home but um but then the, all the adults suck <laughs> so in that sense, <laughs> series of unfortunate events like i mean even his mom who like obviously cares for charlie still isn't willing to like stand up to the grandma when she's being mean to him and like she takes a very passive stance, and that's actually what i loved about it because this book made it realistic because the, like, the mom straight up talks to Charlie and goes, no, you need to go to the school. like, And he goes, well, why? Why can't I just say no? And she goes, because if you do, they will kick us out. When your father died, we lost, I, I, like, I don't know what happened. They bought the house and now I literally have nothing. I, your grandmother, Maisie, has nothing. Everything's in their name. If, if we don't do, you know, this isn't unreasonable of them to say, hey, go to this school. We're going to provide you with clothes. We're going to provide you with instruments and textbooks. Like, they're giving him a lot. They're giving him a good opportunity. And she goes, we can't really turn up our nose at it because the alternative is us living on the street. Yeah. And to me, that was just to, amazingly realistic. Like... It wasn't some made-up magical answer of, oh, it just is the way it is. And it's just straight up, this family does not play clean. They they do dirty tricks. They do whatever it takes to maintain control. And they're stuck in this web. Series of Unfortunate Events kind of have that same realism to it where, like, everything's not all just going to end up okay. You know, like, some sometimes things just don't go your way and not that harry potter didn't have that because of course it does but um but the adults in series of unfortunate events were clearly useless there were only like three that weren't and they all like died off by the end yeah um spoiler alert potentially (laughs) i don't know maybe we didn't tell you which ones die off (laughs) we didn't tell you which ones were worth a damn So, yeah, that's just was kind of what I was thinking the whole time I read it. It was like, man, it's like the characters of Series of Unfortunate Events and even like the school where they're at. It reminded me of the academy that they go to in one of the books in Series of Unfortunate Events, Austere Academy, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, where it's, you know, all doom and gloom. Like, talk about all the meals are terrible, all the teachers are terrible, all the, you know, like, it's just they're constantly like looking for a reason to put you in detention. It's like if Snape ruled the school the whole time that Harry went there, you know, like, but that was another cool thing is that it's, yeah, the school is doom and gloom, except for these few teachers, except for uh, one of my favorite parts is them talking about the cook. 
because we don't meet the we don't really meet Cook through Charlie's eyes. We meet Cook through Billy. So we, all we know is that she's a sweet woman that just likes to take care of the kids, and she's the cook for the entire school. But at the end of the book, after Charlie gets back, and he's like, "Oh, we're going to have a feast," and they're like, "What are you talking?" Charlie's like, "What are you talking about?" Oh, the cook's going to make us dinner. Why would she do that? Because she's the cook. And Charlie's like, that makes no sense. And he goes, don't worry. When she says, like when she makes up her mind, no one, not even the Bloors, will stand in her way. You know, it's very like if Madame Pumphrey was willing to like (laughs) backhand someone. Like Madame Pumphrey, like she would, she would talk, She'd talk a lot of junk about how she just wished that the kids were taken care of better and would uh, how she only stands in her position to take care of them. But imagine the power behind that drive. Well, and Madame Pomfrey that, never had an issue with telling Dumbledore to get lost. Get, or, <laughs> and he would know. have to ask her. I love that. He'd yeah. be like, please allow me five more minutes. And she would just go... That's it. That's all you're getting. (laughs) But no more. (laughs) Madam Pumphrey didn't play no games. And and we don't know much about Cook. But apparently she don't play games either. Well, this has been uh, a wonderful time talking about this book. It's actually inspired me. I I do plan on rereading the series. Oh, yeah? Um, Yeah. So if you want, I can send you the books too. Uh, but I definitely want to read through them because this is a really great book. I enjoyed it. Um, like, like I it really I is it enough to read the rest. But I would like to know what happens. So you reread them and then just fill me in. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, there's I think eight books in the series. Yeah, that's, and that's too much for me. <laughs> too big a commitment. Mrs. Oh, I'm gonna read 48 books in a year, and I've already read like 31 of them. 21, okay. 22 <laughs> now, actually. This was like an hour ago. <laughs> oh, you just finished the book an hour ago? Charlie Bone. Oh, well, I finished it a couple hours ago. Uh-huh, Look at this, people. Look at this. <laughs> okay. Hey, but I wasn't the one who was an hour and a half late to our podcast, so... <laughs> Tis true. <laughs> well, uh, we enjoyed uh, having this conversation uh, we w- definitely want to hear your thoughts, your feedback about this book. Also, about the other books, feel free to hit us up. And what do you think about the series? Or should we do another podcast for the other books? Maybe. I don't know. I'll definitely enjoy it. Make Lindsay read it. Um, but or we have. You read them all, and the podcast is you just telling me everything that happens. <laughs> we can figure a way to make that work. But either way, uh, we're super excited for the next month's book. All right. So next month um, is a book that I've had on my to-be-read list for entirely too long, and I've heard so much about it, and it's supposed to be really, really great. So really excited to announce we're reading Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And she's one of my more recent um, like favorite authors. I've read three or four of her books now, and they're all incredible. So I'm really excited to start this one. Daisy is a girl coming of age in L.A. in the late 60s, sneaking into clubs on Sunset Strip, sleeping with rock stars, and dreaming and singing at the Whiskey A Go-Go. The sex and drugs are thrilling, but it's the rock and roll she loves most. By the time she's 20, her voice is getting noticed, and she has the kind of heedless beauty that makes people do crazy things. Also getting noticed is the six, 
a band led by the brooding Billy Dunn. On the eve of their first tour, his girlfriend Camila finds out she's pregnant, and with the pressure of impending fatherhood and fame, Billy goes a little wild on the road. Daisy and Billy cross paths when a producer realizes that the key to a supercharged success is to put the two together. What happens next will become the stuff of legend. The making of that legend is chronicled in this riveting and unforgettable novel, written as an oral history of one of the biggest bands of the 70s. Taylor Jenkins Reid is a talented writer who takes her work to a new level with Daisy Jones and the Six, brilliantly, brilliantly capturing a place and time in an utterly distinctive voice. I'm down. That sounds great. <laughs> and it was also a um, Reese Witherspoon pick, I think. Like, she does her book picks. Is, she, is Reese Witherspoon trying to copy Oprah? Um, I mean, there's some people that do it. But, but that's not going to work. It's the Oprah Book Club. Right, but she's also she's already been doing it for like two years. Well, people Oprah did definitely, it Oprah's still doing it. No one's... <laughs> You don't you don't have to pick between the two like it's just an extra book to read if you want. Yeah, like I think last month I read an Oprah pick and a Reese pick. But. Well, go you. <laughs> I definitely need to get back into my house so that way I can have more reading time. Yeah. Well, I'll get there. We've had an amazing time this evening, and we can't wait for our next month's podcast. So please feel free to join in our conversations on all the social media accounts, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Gotta keep, remember that one. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> well, uh, we don't really have discussions on Pinterest, but you can check well, out our yeah. other stuff that we pin. <laughs> yeah. Sean's new to Pinterest. We'll forgive him. <laughs> please do. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for joining us, guys, and we'll see you again next month. See you later.